1: There are other ways to connect your phone to your vehicle speakers too. You can see detailed instructions when you Google ways to listen to vision.
0: However and wherever you listen to vision, you can be sure that the announcers, programs and music will help you look to God daily.
1: This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media. Thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily please make your donation today at vision.org.au.
0: Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher, with a straight-talking message from the Word. When you come to the end of it all, God releases the power of the Holy Spirit that we are totally, completely dependent on Him. Today with Jeff Vines.
2: Hello and welcome. I'm Bill and thanks for joining me again on Today with Jeff Vines. Pastor Jeff is currently in the middle of discussing seven principles found in Gideon's life. And today we're going to continue looking at number four. The idea that God can often strip us of everything we depend upon other than himself. So we're in Judges chapter 6. Let's hear from Pastor Jeff now as he continues this message.
0: Let me ask you, what is so central and essential to your life, that should you lose it, you would feel hardly worth living? Now, for the Christ follower, God takes one of two avenues if you've got that thing in your life that you turn to, if it's your arsenal, it could be, you know, sometimes when people go through a difficult time, they don't turn to God, they turn to friends and they go from one friend to the next friend waiting to hear the advice that they're really looking for. Some will depend upon a sport as a, as a way to alleviate the pain. They'll go and just be active to try to crowd out what they're really experiencing or going through. Others will even use religion to do that. What is your go-to? And whatever you go-to, whatever the thing is that you place the highest priority on, whatever your greatest love really is, that if you lost it, you would feel like you could not live, God either won, frustrates them. A quote that I used a couple of years back came from uh, Cynthia Heimel uh, in an article that was recorded in the Village Voice. I know I've stated this before. It's really compelling because she says, you know, I've known the Hollywood elite. I had relationships with them. And she says, they were so nice when they were trying to make ends meet. Blue collar workers working their way through acting school. Then they got what they wanted. They caught their big break. And she says, they became so mean. Before they were stars, they struggled to make ends meet like the rest of us. They constantly played the if only game, waiting for their ship to come in. She said, like us, they were occasionally stressed, driven, frustrated with common tendencies toward anger and even some hostility. That's how people are when they don't have what they think will make everything okay. But then she says, when they finally did get what they wanted, what they had been pursuing, they became awful people, unstable, angry, manic, unhappier. And then she says, I quote, "'I pity celebrities, I really do. "'Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, "'but now their wrath is awful. "'They wanted fame, so they worked, pushed and shoved. "'Yet the morning after each one of them became famous, "'they wanted to take an overdose.'" Because that giant thing that was going to make everything okay, make their lives bearable, give meaning and purpose to their lives, happened, and they were still them. The disillusion turned them howling and insufferable. And then she finishes, and it took me a while to understand what she meant by this, but she said, I think when God wants to play a really rotten practical joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then laughs merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. The lie of the human experience. This one thing, if I get it, will give me the happiness and contentment that I'm ultimately searching for. But it's not only the Hollywood elite who have this. I have it. You have it. We're all in this together. Everybody has that one thing. And sometimes God will let you have it to show you its futility. But can I tell you that's the exception rather than the rule? I believe that in most cases... Most of us will never realize, we'll never get to the place where we fully realize our idols. That thing that we are pursuing, believing that if we catch it, all of life will be well, life will be worth living. For most of us, we live in the illusion for most of our lives because we get just enough of our dream to keep pursuing it. So we never really see that it cannot satisfy. Someone has said, you're only young once, but you can be immature forever. And sadly, as you get older, you realize that these things that you're after, they're after you. We say that if if only I could get this, but it's got you. These things in their present form, they're your enemies. They're not your friends. They'll never deliver what they promised. Never. At first, they make you feel great. But so does heroin. At first, heroin is awesome. But it'll eventually kill you. What is the... What is the thing that God could do? What is, the, what is the one thing that God could do to save you? He could let you have your idol to see its futility, which he does, and I think a minute part of the population. But for most of us, what he does is completely strip it away from us, completely take it away so that the only thing we have left to trust in is God. This is a, this is a hard pill to swallow. I look back in the course of my life and I know I've shared this a few times, but I've tried to be very personal in this series. And I wanna tell you, I make fun of myself and I've told you the story when I went to Tennessee Tech and I was trying to make it in the game of basketball. And I know some of my friends who had heard that message, I think some of them would have said, Jeff, yeah, you were an All-American, but you you were a big fish in a small pond. Did you really think you could make it? And the answer is yes, it was my life. I mean, folks, You have to understand, I grew up with a basketball in my hand every day of my life. I actually slept with my basketball. It was in my bed with me. I dribbled it to school. I stayed in the gym until the lights turned out because my hope and my significance was based in this game of basketball, and I really believed it was going to take me somewhere and I would be fulfilled. Now, after I went to the Tennessee Tech basketball camp, and after the first day, I've told you the story, I won't repeat it, but I realized There's no way I'd ever make it. And I remember going back to my dorm room and accusing God. It's like, God, why did you do this? You set me up. You knew I wasn't good enough to accomplish this. Why did I even get the invitation? Why did you bring me here? I thought you were sovereign. (sighs) And I look back now and I I, I start to see that what God was saying to me is I am sovereign. But I knew you were never going to listen to me until you experienced it for yourself. I've been calling you away from this game for years. This is not my plan or purpose for you. Now, does that mean basketball is bad? No. For some, it is his plan and purpose, but it wasn't for me. And the only way I could ever come to terms with that is if God completely took it away from me. Now, when that happens, when God takes something away from you that is your go-to, that is your real hope and security, you've got one of two ways to respond. The first way is you can run away from God. You can get depressed and despondent and give up life and living, or If you're growing in your faith, you run to God and you say, okay, God, it's gone. Where do we go from here? God will usually strip us of everything we depend upon other than himself. And the reason is, is because God loves you and he knows those things will never deliver and he refuses to sit idly by and watch you destroy your life. You cannot fill an eternal void by temporary means. How often have we said that? And if you keep trying, Do you know what God does? He'll strip it away because he doesn't want you to be empty and frustrated and despondent of the soul. You know, a couple years ago, and this is going back now, I haven't seen this young girl around our church for a long time, but she was especially gifted and talented. Uh, You know, she was the right height and she had the right look of the Hollywood elite and she was quite a good dancer. I think she had worked a lot at Disney for a while. Then she'd got a part, smaller parts in plays. And then I think even on Broadway. And she really wanted to make it, but she just hit a point at which the invitation stopped coming. She was devastated. She was quite talented. And she came and she talked to me. She said, Pastor Jeff, can I talk to you? And we had a conversation. And I said, well, how are you feeling? She goes, well, I gotta tell you, I don't think I believe in God anymore because I prayed and I prayed and I never got what I wanted. That was my test for God. I said, God, if you're real and you exist, I, I, I prayed that you would open these doors and he didn't. So the conclusion that I've drawn is God's not real. I sat down with her, I said, Let, let's talk just for a moment. If God is truly God, then he would be sovereign over the events of your life, correct? She says, I absolutely agree. I said, is, is it not possible that God did not want to give you something that he knew would ultimately destroy you? Can you at least admit that God knows more than you? And because he sees the future, he knows that if he would have given you this, it would have destroyed you for all of eternity. You may have a temporary uh, buzz, but ultimately you lose your soul. Is that not a possibility? You know what her response was to me? She said, that's not God's decision. She said, that's my decision. This is my life. I got to tell you, that was one of those times in ministry that I was stumped. A conversation like that, we have to go back to the very beginning and remind you who you are. Can you think of a time when you were frustrated with God because you didn't get something? I mean, you were angry, frustrated, even started to deny his existence, a job, entrance into the right school, a promotion, entrance into a particular social circle, Success in any endeavor. Can you at least acknowledge that God may know more than you? If you had the choice between fame and fortune here and eternal life there, which would you choose? You may come back and say, Pastor Jeff, can I have both? And the answer is you can, but only God knows if you're able to handle both. You don't. In the book Counterfeit Gods, the author says, most people spend their lives trying to make their heart's fondest dreams come true. Isn't that what life is all about? The pursuit of happiness? We search endlessly for ways to acquire the things we desire and we are willing to sacrifice much to achieve them. We never imagine that getting our heart's deepest desires might be the worst thing that could ever happen to us. See, it all comes down to what you believe about origin. Remember? Remember? We said that is the governing factor in the way we live our lives. You have come from God, created in the image of God, the instrument of God for the purposes of God to return to God. So the real issue is this, for what has God ultimately called you? And then what cords have to be broken before the grand weaver can weave his great calling and purpose together in your life for the ultimate victories of your life? Let me say that again. What cords have to be broken before the grand weaver can weave his great calling and purpose together in your life for the ultimate victories of your life. So the million dollar question is this, what have you lost that caused you to be angry at God when the strong possibility is that he was in fact saving you, not abandoning you? You must come to terms with this if you ever hope to live the wild life. Okay, let me bring this together just quickly. There are two sides to this battle. One, the realization the battle's coming. It's coming, but those battles are the fertile ground on which God prepares you for the extravagant eternal victories of your life. And two, if you turn to the idols of your life to help you win those battles, then your hope and trust and security will be in something that will falter every single time. Again, what is your go-to? What is your go-to? And let me just tell you, It's got a target on its back because God is going to remove it so that your ultimate dependence will be on him. Gideon is growing in his faith and trust in God. He's facing the enemy of his life. This is an opportunity for him to experience the greatest success of his life, but he's got to learn that the battle belongs to the Lord. He must turn to God for wisdom and power and strength not in the things he has placed his trust in in the past, bows and arrows. That's not your arsenal. He needs the one who holds the whole world in his hands. Therefore, for those of you who feel like you're in the land of oppression, God will usually strip you of everything you depend upon. Your money goes, your friends go, your hidden places are exposed. One by one, God removes all your dependencies until you have nowhere else to turn. Now, Stay with me now, this is the end. But when you come to the end of it all, God releases the power of the Holy Spirit through us and in us to the degree that we are totally, helplessly, and completely dependent on Him. So the more empty you are of yourself and your idols, the more filled with the Spirit and the power and the presence and the wisdom of God that will ultimately lead you to the greatest victories of your life. Isaiah 31 says, "'Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, "'who rely on horses, "'who trust in the multitude of their chariots "'and in the great strength of their horsemen, "'but do not look to the Holy One of Israel "'or seek help from the Lord. "'God has called you for a purpose. "'He wants to release His divine energy, "'power and wisdom in you and through you, "'but that cannot happen until the things you trust in "'are stripped from you "'and the only thing you can do is turn to the Lord.'" If you live with that understanding, the setbacks of your life are going to be perceived incredibly differently. Rather than depressing you, they just might in time inspire you to the point where you say, well, that's one less thing that stood in the way of my greatest eternal extravagant victories. Now, let me end like this with something that I found quite humorous, but it's also very inspirational. It's an article It came out of the New York Times, September, 1985. The title of the article was Letter in the Wallet. And it was written by a man by the name of Arnold Fine, a fine journalist, no pun intended. He says, one bitterly cold day, I stumbled upon a wallet. It had $3 in it and a crumbled up old letter. It had obviously been carried around for many years because the letter was dated 60 years earlier. Imagine carrying a letter around for 60 years. He read it and discovered that the letter began with the words, Dear Michael, but then tearfully ended a romance due to the parents' disapproval. The last line in the letter promised, I will always love you, Michael, and was signed, Your Hannah. Fine decided to track down the owner of the wallet. Using Hannah's address still legible on the letter, he finally retrieved the phone number. When he called, he learned to no surprise, obviously, that Hannah's family had long moved away, but the person on the other end of the line knew the name of the nursing home that Hannah's mother was in. Fine called the nursing home only to learn, of course, that Hannah's mother was no longer living. But when Fine told them what he was doing, they gave him a numbered address they had on file for Hannah. He called the number, found out that Hannah herself was now living in a nursing home. Fine asked for the name of the home, found the number. He confirmed it was the very same Hannah in the wallet in the letter, in the story, and that she was a resident in the home. As soon as possible, Fine writes how he decided to visit the nursing home and try to talk to Hannah. When he arrived, the director took him to Hannah on the third floor where she was watching television. Fine introduced himself to Hannah, explained how he had found this letter in a wallet. He showed her the letter and asked her, are you the one who wrote this letter? She looked at it, trembling. Yes, Hannah replied. I sent this letter to the love of my life. I sent this letter to Michael because I was very young and my parents did not want me to see him anymore. He was very handsome, you know, she said, like Sean Connery. Fine could see both the twinkle in her eye and the joy on her face as she spoke of her love for Michael. Yes, she said, Michael Goldstein was his name. And if you find him, would you tell him? that I think of him often, and I never did marry. No one ever could match up to him. Discreetly brushing the tears from her eyes, she thanked Fine for coming. Fine left. Now, as he's leaving the home, the security guard at the front gate, just out of curiosity, at the right time and the right place, asked him about his visit. And Fine told the story and then said, well, At least I was able to get the last name from her. His name was actually Michael Goldstein. The security guard says, Goldstein? Well, there's a Mike Goldstein who lives here at this home on the eighth floor. Fine turned around, went back inside, this time to the eighth floor, where he asked for Michael Goldstein. When directed to an elderly gentleman, he said, sir, have you lost your wallet? Oh yes, I lost my wallet the other day when I was out for a walk. Fine handed him the wallet and asked if it was his Michael Goldstein was delighted to see it again and was full of gratitude to the finder, proceeded to thank him for returning it when fine interrupted him. I have to tell you something, Mr. Goldstein. I read the letter in your wallet. Caught off guard, Michael paused for a moment and then asked, you read my letter? Yes, sir, I did. And I have further news for you. I know where Hannah is. Michael grew pale. You know where she is? How is she? How is she? Mr. Fine replied, she is fine and just as pretty as when you knew her. Could you tell me where she is? I- I'd love to call her. You know, when that letter came to me, my life ended. I've never gotten married. I never stopped loving her. No one could measure up. Fine said, come with me. He takes Michael by the elbow, let him down to the elevator to the third floor. By this time, the director of the building had joined them. They came to Hannah's room. Hannah, the director, whispered, gesturing toward Michael, do you know this man? She adjusted her glasses and looked at the man as she searched her memory bank, and then with a choked voice, Michael spoke up. Hannah, it's Michael. She stood as he walked over to her. They embraced and held onto each other for as long as they could stay steady on their feet. They sat down holding hands, Between the tears, they filled in the story of the long years that had passed. Feeling as though they had intruded on a sacred moment, Mr. Fine and the director slowly slipped away to leave the two alone to enjoy their reunion. The article goes on to say that three weeks later, Arnold Fine received an invitation to attend the wedding of Hannah, 76 years of age, and Michael, 78. And Fine closes his story by saying these words, how good the work of the Lord is. I thought about that, how good the work of the Lord is. What are the odds of this reunion? How many moving parts had to come together? A man loses his wallet. Another man feels a resolve to return it. A security guard asks the right questions at the right time. The fact that two people who have loved each other for their entire lives end up in the same home, just five floors apart. Coincidence? or pieces of the puzzle placed together to accomplish the ultimate good of restoring a lost love. Can I tell you something? Please listen. There is a grand weaver. Where your life is concerned, yes, there's many moving parts. And God is sovereign over all of them. And because his objective is of the utmost importance, because he is determined to accomplish something extravagant, extraordinary in your life, I can tell you this, every event of your life from the happy to the tragic to the mundane is part of a meticulous and purposeful design in which all the elements intertwine with breathtaking, breathtaking precision. God will have his way and he will have his way in you when you pursue the wild life by waking up every day with a keen awareness that God will take advantage of the unfortunate events of your life to prepare you for the greatest victories of your life, that God will often ask you to do something that seems to be unreasonable, that he will lead you to do that which brings him the most glory, that he will strip you of everything you depend upon other than himself. And if you keep this grand weaver in mind while all that's happening, the greatest difficulties in your life will prepare you for the greatest successes of your life until the day you are in the presence of the greatest love of your life, God. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his works in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. What have you lost in your life? I pray that your eyes are opened. God did not abandon you. He saved you.
2: And that brings us to the end of another principle found in Judges that we can apply to our lives. Next time on Today with Jeff Vines, Pastor Jeff has more from this section of Judges all about Gideon.
0: This event in Gideon's life was the clincher for him. He's transformed from doubt into total, ultimate confidence. But God knew that this dream for Gideon and the way he was thinking would seal the deal.